Welcome to another episode of Sleep With Me, starring Wendy Friesen, clinical certified hypnotherapist, here to answer your questions and help you become a better you. Now here she is, Wendy Friesen. Hello, I'm Wendy Friesen and welcome to Sleep With Me. Of course, that refers to the hypnotic nature of my show. So (laughs) I want you to relax and take deep breaths and I want you to feel really good. And when you let yourself first fall asleep at night or when you're taking a nap, what do you think about? Do you just let your mind wander or do you sometimes direct your mind and your thoughts and your feelings to achieve something specific or at least put your focus on something that you do want to feel and experience. And we certainly know that with hypnosis, you know, when you're falling asleep, that alpha state that you're in, and then kind of going into theta, that's where you're very, very suggestible, where you can create images and ideas and thoughts and be incredibly creative. But yet a lot of people aren't taking advantage of that period of time going from waking to sleeping. So when you're going into hypnosis, or if you're in the chair of a hypnotherapist, you're experiencing that, but you're being guided so that your thoughts are specifically going to experience something that you do want. So today we're going to talk about how you use those thoughts, direction, and intention, and emotions, and feelings, and visuals, and all those things to have a better memory, to help you to know that You don't have to have anxiety block your ability to have a good memory, getting rid of test anxiety, being able to remember names, perhaps being able to have certain memory functions that you did not know that you have. So I've got some interesting information for you. But first of all, I would like to talk about pot. That's right. (coughs) Marijuana, the reefer, (laughs) the evil weed. I just found an article that I think is really fascinating. It's about Alzheimer's and marijuana. We already know that cannabinoids, which is cannabis, have a lot of positive effects on killing cancer cells. We have a lot of research now that we know that certain kinds of cancer cells respond very well to cannabis oil, not smoking it, but the very concentrated oil. We know that the CBD in cannabis gets rid of anxiety. So I previously had talked about anxiety on my other show, and it's a very difficult thing for people to overcome. The CBD has no psychoactive properties, which means that you're not going to get high. But you can take CBD oil, and it'll get rid of your anxiety in a lot of cases, which is pretty good. Anxiety causes all kinds of problems, but even bigger, the thing that I'm talking about today is with marijuana and Alzheimer's research. So we do know that inflammation is the cause of most diseases and inflammation creates, you know, pain and illness and cancer is a result of inflammation and many diseases are, but um, Alzheimer's is showing a very good response to cannabis. So the Salk Institute did testing that is for the tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, against the plaque buildup that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. So we know that the amyloid plaques, and you've heard of that, this is a thing that initiates an inflammatory response in the brain that they think is causing Alzheimer's. 
So we're pretty sure that these amyloid plaques are the thing causing it. But what they've discovered is that this is actually blocked by cannabinoids. So the, um, they used human neurons that they grew in a lab, and then they altered these human neurons so that they created the plaque buildup. Next, these neurons were subjected to amounts of THC and other marijuana compounds. They found that putting these um, THC and marijuana compounds into the neurons, it significantly reduced the inflammation and the protein buildup, which is those amyloid plaques, which are the two causes of Alzheimer's. So amyloid proteotoxicity, which is the plaques, initiates an inflammatory response, but we know now that it's blocked by cannabinoids. So isn't that fascinating? It's possible that there is more to this as well, not just in Alzheimer's. The study says that nerve cell death from the accumulation of aggregated or amyloid-like proteins is a common theme in most age-dependent neurodegenerative diseases. However, there are no drugs that significantly inhibit cell death associated with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, or Huntington's diseases. This could be because most interest has been in the late manifestations of the disease, not in the initial changes in cell metabolism that ultimately lead to nerve cell death. In the context of lifespan, slowing down the removal of aggregated proteins in the brains of flies shortens lifespan. Therefore, it is likely that the accumulation of intracellular aggregated protein in the brain occurs throughout life and contributes to cognitive aging and may also be involved in the initiation of many age-associated diseases. So now, back to the THC in marijuana. When you have this, it is acting earlier on by stopping these amyloid plaques from forming, and it's blocking the formation of them because of the anti-inflammatory action. So when you think about pot and you think about all the things you learned about it in the 70s and all the dangers and the you know addiction and all the horrible things that were said about it, there really wasn't a lot of research to show what kind of damage it's doing or how it's harming people. I know about 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you know, they still said that there's a part of your brain that atrophies and that it shrinks this part of your brain that's the motivation center in your brain. Well, it turns out that they don't really know that either because there's some new research with the better technology they have to scan the brain and do this, do these tests that shows that marijuana is not harming your brain. And I'm going to get to that study in just a moment. I think it's so fascinating though, that something that, you know, we looked at as smoking the reefer, the old reefer madness in this horrible weed that's destroying people's lives is actually having a really positive effect on a lot of conditions, particularly pain control, anxiety, many types of cancers, and now we're looking at it being the possible key to not getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Huntington's disease. So we have something that is pretty spiffy that we need to investigate further. There are a lot of people who have gotten off drugs and alcohol using marijuana. So there's a field of addiction study that is about harm reduction. So when you're using marijuana instead of having a raging alcohol problem or addicted to opiates or heroin, this is harm reduction. You're bringing it down to a less harmful substance that is actually helping you to quit drinking or get off opiates. 
So there is a lot of information about people quitting drinking by using marijuana instead, because the two don't go together very well. So you smoke uh, the marijuana or you take oral or edibles and you just don't have an urge to drink. Well, it is less harmful. And we're going to take a look at what this study is that shows that it's not shrinking your brain and what it's actually doing to your brain. This study is from the University of Iowa, and it says frequent marijuana use may affect brain function, but not structure. And this is what got my attention because I'm like, well, structure, what's that? Let's find out. So the recent study indicates that some people who frequently use marijuana have substantially lower blood flow to certain parts of their brains. However, smoking the illicit drug does not affect brain size or structure. And it's no longer an illicit drug in, mo- in many states in the U.S. So here's what it says. Um, that smoking it doesn't affect brain size or structure. Although marijuana is the most widely used illicit drug, surprisingly little attention has been given to the impact of frequent marijuana use on the structure or functioning of the human brain, says Robert Block, Ph.D., professor of anesthesia and lead investigator to the studies. So here's what they found. Whether it produces harmful effects is important because marijuana is a popular drug and also because there's a lot of interest in its potential value as a medicine. Many people believe that harmful effects have not been proven as clearly with marijuana as with most other illegal drugs. So what they did is PET scans on young marijuana users and they're frequent users as well, which is important. So they're, you know, they're probably using it every day. And then they had control subjects that did not use the marijuana. During the study, the subjects were lying quietly. They didn't perform any kind of test and they weren't given any directions about what to think about. The marijuana users who were using it seven or more times weekly on the average were required to abstain from using the drug for 26 hours prior to the scan to eliminate the short-term effects of smoking it. The scan results showed that the marijuana users had up to an 18% lower blood flow in the posterior cerebellum. There was very little effect of marijuana use anywhere else in the brain. Changes in blood flow usually correspond to changes in brain activity. So diminished blood flow indicates altered brain function in some frequent marijuana users. So the idea that frequent marijuana use impairs mental abilities is still controversial. But the recent studies support such an association, although the cerebellum was traditionally thought to mainly be involved in controlling movements, more recent evidence has shown that it also plays a role in memory, attention, and other mental abilities. Some cognitive effects of marijuana use may be related to this lower activity of the posterior cerebellum. Okay, so those of you who engage in the use of marijuana, you may already know this, that it does play a role in memory, attention, and mental abilities. But for some people, it makes them more creative and more focused because that's the only part of your brain that it's reducing blood flow. Isn't that interesting? So we had there, they had the subject stop for at least a day to eliminate the short-term effects of smoking it. But it's possible that some of the brain changes that they're seeing were withdrawal effects. If they go away after a few days of abstinence, they would be less serious than if they persist for weeks or months or longer after a person stops using. They measured separately the gray matter and the white matter, and the marijuana users showed no evidence of overall or regional changes in the volume of brain tissue. 
So in the 70s, there was a paper that was published that described cerebral atrophy in young marijuana users. And I'm quoting this doctor who did the study. The paper was widely publicized and quoted for some time regarding the harmful effects of marijuana, but other researchers did not find any cerebral atrophy. Neuroimaging techniques have improved tremendously over the years, and we wanted to see whether these improved techniques would show decreases in brain tissue in any parts of the marijuana user's brains. We found no evidence of atrophy or any other harmful effects. So I think this is pretty fascinating that, you know, all this time we have believed that this, the previous studies showed that marijuana changes your brain over time and that it reduces certain function, when in fact now we're finding out that it doesn't do any of that and it does not permanently affect your brain. Only temporarily, which is that time when you're chilling out going like, yeah, dude, hey, let's... Uh, watch a movie. <laughs> but it is a great stress reducer and we know that we've got to reduce stress from our life. So you reduce stress by having a drink or um, exercising, which is good for you, or you know, doing things that may not be that good for you when in fact you could use pot as a stress reducer and it's not having any long-term adverse effects on your brain. But I think more importantly is the anti-inflammatory effect that it has because all these diseases that are caused from inflammation, including pain, joint pain, muscle pain, um, you know, and the things that when we're in a state of inflammation. Several years ago, I had a really stressful week and I had four migraines in one week. And uh, at that time, I wasn't really much of a pot smoker, not since like years and years before that. But the, I didn't have migraines regularly. It just wasn't a thing. But Boy, I got one, it was gone, another one. and <laughs> So on the fourth one, my son said, well, let me go get you some pot. That'll get rid of your headache. And I was like, really? That Just like that? He says, well, yeah, it's worth a try. So I did. I took just one hit of the pot and that was it. My head was totally cleared up, like within 15 minutes. The headache pain was gone and I felt fine. And I didn't get any more migraines that week. And I still, you know, it's just really rare for me to get them, which was odd that I was getting them so frequently that week. But anyway, that's another story. Um, <laughs> but it was such an amazing fast cure for the migraine headache pain because it's getting rid of the inflammation that was causing the problem that was creating the condition for the headaches. So what causes that inflammation? Number one is stress. Absolutely. We can measure how that causes inflammation in your body. And of course, diet, what you eat and how you take care of yourself and how much sleep you get also has a really profound effect. So give it a new thought. If you're not pro marijuana, I'm not asking you to go out and become a pothead because that's obviously not the point, but maybe you want to look at it from some different perspectives. And here in Colorado, we have dispensaries. So you can walk into any dispensary, anyone can, and you can get a variety of types of marijuana or oil or CBD oil. You can get very low THC oil that you can just take and put under your tongue or as a tincture, so you don't have to smoke it. But for people who have insomnia and trouble sleeping, it will make you sleep. It doesn't knock you out. You're fully aware. It's just that it gives you that ability to sleep. And if you wake up during the night, you'll easily go back to sleep. So there's nothing that has to be happening with you being really high from it. It just has a really good effect 
on getting you to stay asleep or fall back asleep. When you think about the horrible side effects of a lot of medication for insomnia, and you look at how natural the marijuana or the oil is to help you sleep, it kind of makes sense to maybe give it a try. And we know now that there just aren't the harmful effects. And if it's not legal for recreational use in your state, you're probably legal for medical marijuana, where you can go get a card from your doctor, and you can do it that way. So one of the interesting things about that study that I was just talking about is that these the people they studied um, had been frequent users, which meant at least seven times a week, for four years. So they had a fairly long-term brain that had been using pot for many years. So, so good information. Good to know. Now, I wanted to talk to you about memory and how to improve your memory. Because a lot of people, as they age, feel like their memory is declining. Now, memory problems have many causes. Uh, anxiety, nervousness, fear, phobias, all those things affect your memory. How stressed you are definitely affects your memory and how much sleep you get affects your memory. So let's just take a moment right now. To say that, there are a lot of things you can do to help with that stress level. I personally like hypnosis, and I have made over 300 hypnosis programs that are to help you with stress, with sleep, with getting your mind to be sharper and more active. And you can find those on my website at hypnosis.wendy.com. So Wendy's spelled with an I. That's hypnosis.wendy.com. You'll see some links in the description of this podcast that will take you directly to some of these programs. So memory, I started helping people with their memory very early on. And I found that most of it was that when a person's trying to remember something, they're putting effort into it, they're creating a level of stress in their brain and effort that actually creates a condition in their brain that prevents them from remembering what they want to remember. Now, I'm sure you've had this happen where you're trying to remember someone's name. You know that you know their name, (laughs) but the more you try, the more gone that name is, the more elusive it is. Well, you put that little bit of stress in there, and it is really hard for these neural networks and pathways and these neurons to have a really smooth, easy flow to the place in your brain where that name was stored. Normally, remembering someone's name happens unconsciously, automatically, But as soon as you make it a conscious effort, that's when it's gone. Because so much of our mental acuity and our sharpness and our ability to think quickly comes from a subconscious place, from the other than conscious place that we really don't understand. So I made um, a program for children to remember how to spell words. Spelling is a visual activity, and it's not a memorization activity. It's not memorizing that the word dog is spelled D-O-G. It is seeing the word dog. It has a shape, and it is an image. And we store the image of that word in our brain. We learn how to pronounce it so it's linked to an audio segment in our brain. And when we see that word, we're not sounding it out. We're not going dog. We're just looking at the image of that word and the audio is right there on our head that says dog. Now, the problem for a lot of children when they're learning to spell is that they're taught to spell with an auditory foundation. They have to 
try to sound out the words. By having them sound out the words, their brain is storing the spelling of that word in the wrong place or in the wrong format. So we turn them into a visual speller. And for adults who have trouble spelling, that's the reason you have trouble spelling is because you're an auditory speller. So adults and children can benefit from this. But I know there's like the struggle that kids have in school because they can't spell. In part, it's because... I don't know if they're still doing it now, but when my two boys were young, they started using this like whole language system and they would let kids write the words in whatever way they wanted. So they didn't have to spell it right. They just wanted them to write and express themselves and get really good at sounding out the letters and the words. Well, the English language is just too complex to use any auditory method to try and spell a word. So the kids could have any kind of spelling they wanted. And their brain is trying to take the image of that word and store it with the auditory sound of it and have that be the word that is dog or whatever word. And then, as they tried to correct their spelling, made their brain very confused because their brain already stored the word enough. They would be able to spell it E-E-N-U-F. Or maybe some kids thought, oh, wait a minute, P-H has an F sound. Okay, it's E-E-N-U-P-H. And I mean, it's, it is so complex with the English language that the phonetic spelling is just going to scramble your brain. So they're storing different versions of this word in their visual memory in their brain. So when they try to remember a word and how it's spelled, their brain is giving them many possibilities. And so you never have that feeling like when you, you always want to write a word down, like if you want to see if you're spelling it right, you need to write it down because you need to see the shape of the entire word. If it looks right and matches what's in your brain. So here's what I've done with kids and I make Um, I I do something that is really simple. In 20 minutes, they can become a great speller. We have to override what it is they've learned and create a new machine in their brain that is going to be their spelling machine. So I want them to put all the correct spelling of all the words as they're reading a book or they're, you know, looking at whatever words or sentences. I want them to start storing only the correct versions of them in the spelling machine. So when we make the spelling machine, first we give it like color and buttons and knobs and levers. It might even have little sounds like (laughs) or happy sounds, but we're going to make it so distinct that when a child thinks of that spelling machine, it opens up that part of their brain and the function that is needed to be a visual speller. So we make this machine and I assure them that this machine knows how to store every word, the correct spelling of every word, and then we'll put a word into the machine. So I might show them a word like dog or cat, make it very simple. And I just have it on a card and I hold it up. The child looks at it and I say, close your eyes. Now I want you to put that word into the spelling machine and you know it's spelled correctly. So look what the machine does when it has a word that's spelled correctly. Put that word in one end. Now, I want you to think of the word dog and let that word come out of the other end of the machine. What color is it? They say blue. Good. So you know when it's spelled correctly, the word is blue. 
And what else do you notice about it? And it says, well, the letters are kind of furry like a dog. I say, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. Now I want you to put another word in there. Let's put bear, like the kind of bear that's a grizzly bear or a brown bear. So I want you to open your eyes and look at the word bear, B-E-A-R. And now I want you to put that into the machine with your eyes closed. Good. Now I want you to think about bear and let the word come out of the other end. He says, okay, the word's there. I said, tell me what you see. I didn't ask the child to tell me how to spell it. I said, tell me what you see. And then the child would say, B-E-A-R. Wow, very good. And uh, what color is it? Well, it's blue. What else do you notice? Oh, it's got some, some kind of little teeth around it like a bear might have. Very good. So we continue to test the machine, putting correctly spelled words into the machine, having them, them come out spelled correctly. One of the young girls I was working with went through several words that went into her machine and they all came out right. And I asked her to put in the word Africa. So she puts it in there. She looks at it on my card with the A-F-R-I-C-A, puts it in the machine. Very good. Now I want you to think of the word Africa and have it come out of the machine. And it came out and I said, tell me what you see. And she said, well, I don't know. Something's not right. And I said, well, what are the letters? She says A-F-R-I-C-K-A. said, huh, that's interesting. What do you notice about that word. And she said, well, the K is a different color. All the letters are kind of like yellow and brown, like a giraffe, but the K is black. And I said, oh, isn't that interesting? So what happens if you take the K out of that word? She says, oh yeah, it's all fine now. It's correct. So what had happened is that she has seen the spelling of Africa with a K because that is a spelling that exists. But her brain indicated to her that the correct spelling in the English language is A-F-R-I-C-A, making the K appear black instead of having the design that the other letters have. Make sense? So her brain could perceive that these letters are correct and this one is different somehow. Not necessarily totally incorrect, (laughs) just different. So I've done this with adults as well who have trouble spelling. And it's not difficult to do, but you do want to run through a lot of the words. And then when there is something, let's say your child is working on a spelling worksheet, have them use that spelling machine. So when they're trying to do the spelling, first have them see the correct spelling of the word. This is absolutely critical. Have them close their eyes and put it in their mind machine, which that mind machine represents all the function of all the ability of the brain to spell a word. So you've already lit up that that part of the brain and that function of the brain. And now have the word come out spelled correctly. Make sure it's all whatever the color is that represents to the child that it's correct. And now have them do the spelling worksheet, doing that with every word, but making sure that they're putting the correct one into the machine. So I created more mind machines that have a lot more functions. An adult came in who wanted to pass the bar exam to get their, for their legal degree. 
so there's many different um, components and pieces of all the information that they need to access to pass the bar exam. So we made a whole bunch of mind machines. We made some that were for legal cases and dates and torts and all these different things. And everything that the person told me to create, we looked at what category it fits into in the brain. We had each um, like their folders, you know, like folders on your computer kind of, but we made each container a different color or different texture or different shape so that their brain would easily go to the one that says torts or dates or certain kinds of decisions in cases. So their brain knew exactly where to go to find the information. And then that would open up the information they needed going directly to it. So our brains are very visual, obviously, when you create these mind machines and give them visual cues, but they're distinct and different in many ways, then the brain can go and access that easily. Make sense? So of course they ace their uh, bar exam. And then I did some work with, uh, uh, in an office in San Francisco in the financial district with traders and their, um, Traders that were trading on the floor, I don't think they do the trading on the floor anymore, but they're in the pits and they have to scream and yell and make decisions really fast. So when a broker comes into the pit, they have to look at two different monitors just above eye level, and they're looking at rows of fractions, and then they're looking at the other monitor with rows of fractions before they can make their decision to buy or sell they have to know the difference of these fractions. These fractions are unlike fractions. So in other words, there might be three and four sixteenths and two and three eighths or something. So they have to get those differences. Difficult to do. I worked with them in their office and had them close their eyes and create a machine that would do this automatically for them. So I had them imagine, again, with your eyes closed in a very relaxed state, not like totally like hypnotized and out of it, but you're just in a very relaxed state of hypnosis. Imagine that there's a circle in front of you and it's going to be the color orange. Beside it is another circle, which is going to be the color blue. When you imagine yourself looking at the monitor, the number that you need is going to go into one of those circles Look at the other monitor. The other number you need is going to go into the other circle. And right below it, there is a square. In that square, the answer is going to appear and it's going to be correct. So the answer they're looking for is the difference between those two fractions. So we ran through many sets of these unlike fractions, just having them be totally stress-free while they're doing it, very relaxed, no tension, because when they're in the pits, it's a lot of tension, a lot of stress, and they have to think really fast. And I would write down all of the different problems we were working on, and I said, whatever the image that is that appears in the box, just tell me what it is. And so I would write down their answers. And well, with one of the guys, we went through about 12 or 15 of these, and I just wrote down the answers, so just tell me whatever appears. Okay, and so then we're done, and open your eyes. And the next thing I needed to do was figure out if they were correct or not. Because subtracting unlike fractions is a little bit complicated. So I handed the paper to him and I said, here, why don't you go ahead and write down the correct answers? So he's going through these different problems that we created. 
And he's having trouble coming up with, is this a correct answer or what is the answer? And he says, wow, this is really hard. Just like when I'm in the pits, you know, I, it's really hard to think fast and make those answers come up. Well, out of all of the questions we had, I think that 14 out of 15 of them were correct. But consciously, it was very difficult for him to come up with the answers. But unconsciously, when his subconscious mind was just filling in that answer field, he was getting them correct. Almost every time. I mean, a stunning accuracy. So we can create mind machines to perform many functions. For people who are having difficulty in any aspect of math, I know I worked with someone who was doing calculus, and we made mind machines for them for calculus. And the calculus functions got easier, and the answers were more correct, and they got all the right information. And even though I don't know calculus, (laughs) what I did is I took the information from them, laid it out on a piece of paper of what the different pieces were of functions, how they were connected, and then created it in their brain. So when we connect the different parts that need to be connected, they can work together because remember those visual cues are what tell our brain to activate certain functions and then they'd get the answers they need. So for, for instance, kids who are learning multiplication or even addition and subtraction, they are going through a process of figuring out you know, quantities of numbers and the difference in those quantities, but there's some things that can be simple memorization. So with multiplication, instead of trying to figure out, well, if I have six times five, I have six fives, so that's five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. We want to kind of eliminate that because it's unnecessary for them learning their basic multiplication. So we do the same thing with creating two fields in their mind with their eyes closed. And I say, okay, we're going to do five times three in the circle on the left that is yellow. Let's put the five in there. And then in the circle beside it, which is pink, let's put the three in it. And right below it, there is another box. And in that box, the answer will appear. And the answer is 15. Now, what I want to do is I want them to input them correctly at first. So we're not going to go through all the multiplication numbers and possibilities, but we're going to do several of them that are correct. Now I would ask the child to tell me what else you notice about your mind machine. What what does it look like? Does it have a sound? Is there anything else? Maybe they say, well, there is an X between the two fields because that means times. I said, great. What else do you notice? It says, well, there's a line coming down from each of the circles that goes right into the box. And that's how it knows how to get the answer. So we continue doing several functions and say, what's nine times eight? Make sure the number goes into the circle on the left and make sure the next number goes into that circle on the right. And the answer appears right below it. And all of this is happening without stress, without anxiety, without the fear of, you know, you're taking a test or you haven't finished your homework or the, you know, the child is in tears because they're so frustrated because they can't get their multiplication figured out. You've got to remove the stress from it by making the mind machine, giving it colors and sounds and textures and whatever else. We've removed the stress from the situation, allowing them to store this function or store the information in a way 
that is not connected with previous stress, we all know that there are anchors in your mind that are um, triggered by your surroundings, something visual, a sound, anything. So you go in the classroom and you're you're stressed as a child sometimes because like, oh, we have a math test today. I'm so scared. I'm going to get another bad grade and then I'm going to be grounded or whatever else is a punishment. So a child goes into that environment and that situation feeling nervous and stressed and worried and fearful. And they're supposed to then be able to get their brain to override all that and to be able to take a math test. Well, adults have the same problem, you know, people who have test anxiety, it's really, really difficult to overcome it because you have a lifetime of fear being anchored in to taking a test. And when you think about taking that test, it triggers everything that's anchored in there. All the times you've failed and gotten trouble and you're grounded and you feel stupid and, you know, and just all the things that happen with school and that big red pencil on your paper. And as an adult, you know, you got test anxiety and you're not sure why you can't overcome it. But now you know. I've also made a reading machine so that kids can read faster. Because again, the same problem that existed with the spelling exists with the reading their brain might be trying to sound the words out. And as they're reading, they're hearing the words in their mind. So this uses two different functions of the brain that don't go together well. You know, when you're reading a book as an adult, when you're getting any kind of auditory track that's going on, that's kind of sounding out the words as you're reading, it makes you, first of all, not comprehend and understand what you're reading, but it slows you down a lot too. And it just interferes with the whole process. So making a reading machine where if you imagine the words that you're reading in the book, they're kind of going into the machine and they're just coming out of the other side of the machine and you're understanding them and comprehending them. But doing this for a child in a way that allows them to read the shape of the word and know what it is rather than sounding it out and reinforcing the confusion that's created in the brain when you're sounding out a word and making their reading get smoother and faster. And I've done this in just like five minutes with a child to get them to just have a smoother reading experience by removing the need for their brain to sound it out. Another mind machine that I created, and this one doesn't have to do with memory, but I thought it was very clever of me, <laughs> is an example from when I was teaching music at a Waldorf school. So I was uh, teaching like band instruments and there were kids who played different instruments, but the one who played the saxophone, and these were very beginning students. They were mostly in their first year, some in the second year, but the one that played the saxophone had no rhythm. <laughs> he just had no rhythm. The saxophone is so loud and it's so hard for everyone else to keep their rhythm and play together because he's back there trying so hard. And when you watch his foot tapping on the floor, he can't tap a consistent rhythm. He just can't do that one, two, three, four. His foot would like tap, 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 you know, different rhythms. He'd probably be a great jazz musician, huh? Well, anyway, what I did with him is I had him just close his eyes. And it was interesting because all the other kids are just looking on going, whoa, what's she doing? So I had already shown the kids that I could make their fingers stick together and their eyes stick shut and make their arm unable to move. 
which didn't go over very well with the uh, higher-up staff at the school, but that's another story. So I helped him close his eyes and imagine that he had a metronome. It can look like anything you want, but we're going to build the best metronome. And what this metronome knows how to do is to keep time. This metronome can keep perfect time. So I got this going and I said, and your foot follows the metronome. It just does it automatically. And then I had the metronome connect with me up in front of the group when I'm conducting. So as I would conduct, your metronome keeps the beat when you see my arm going up and down, up and down. All of that took oh, less than 10 minutes, maybe just five minutes. From that moment on, awesome Elliot had rhythm. Previously, his brain just had never built something that knew how to have rhythm. We created it, had him imagine it being a machine. We put the function in there. We connected it to me making that rhythm. We connected it to his foot tapping in that right rhythm. And then we also did some three, four time as well so that, you know, we wouldn't get the metronome stuck on just one, two, three, four, but we did some, you know, when, when my arm is making three beats and it's moving the three beats, your metronome goes one, two, three, one, two, three, and your metronome knows where the downbeat is all the time. So I actually talked in that kind of rhythm as well. So there's other uses of mind machines. And one of them that I don't really call it a mind machine, but it's helping you remember names is kind of interesting. You don't, you don't just like hear someone's name and expect it to go somewhere in your brain that is going to be stored with the image of their face or the sound of their voice. You hear their name, and what are you usually doing at the moment that you hear someone's name? You're kind of looking at them. You might be shaking their hands. Maybe you're at a party. Things are going on. You're drinking a little bit. And you hear their name, and then poof, it's like it's just gone. You say, what was your name again? You say, oh, uh, Janice. Yeah, okay, got it. Poof, it's gone. Where did it go? You know, we should be able to remember a person's name. Now, here's something interesting. If you beat someone's dog... And they tell you what their dog's name is. And they say, oh, that's Bowser. You remember their dog's name. I can tell you people's dog's names just hearing it one time. Isn't that odd? But we store it differently because we store it with something specific and the image of the dog and a different part of our brain. But human names are a lot harder for people. And then when you say, oh my gosh, I forgot your name. What do you say next? Oh, you say... I'm so bad at names. And you've probably reinforced it so many times, telling yourself over and over and over, I'm so bad at names. And then you wonder why you can't remember names. Well, it's a combination of things for sure. So I had, this is a funny little story I have for you. I had uh, many years ago before I was a hypnotherapist, I had a tanning salon and when people came in the door, their information was in the computer, but I had to look them up by their last name. This is when computers had still had floppy drives and stuff. Oh boy, how exciting. But anyway, I had sometimes a couple hundred people a day that would come in and I needed to check them in on the computer. So it turned on their tanning bed 
And, (laughs) you know, someone who's been in there many times, to have to ask them what their name is again is really tough. And it's last names, which are a little bit, you know, different as far as how we know them and store them. So when they come in, I would look at their face and beside their face, I would imagine a sign or a placard or something like really colorful. So if the person's name was um, Ann Simpson, then I would see the entire name Ann Simpson maybe written out in some really cute pink flowery letters with a purple border. It only took one second, but it was right beside their face in my mind. So when they came in the next time, I would see that placard or that sign, or I might even see them holding a balloon that has their name on it, but something that was very unique every time that stored visually in my memory with their name, because our memories are visual. I know we have auditory memory as well, but storing things from memory is just so visual. And that's why the mind machines help because they're visual representations of where and how and function and connection bring that particular memory forward. There was a woman that I had a lot of trouble remembering her name, and it was just really bugging me because I had done the thing with the sign and stuff, and it just wasn't working for me. So um, I think her name was Mary Kirby. And what I did is I imagined that when she'd walk in the front door of the tanning salon, she'd be pushing a vacuum cleaner because that would be a Kirby vacuum cleaner, right? So that kind of worked. But then one day she walked in and on the computer, I'm searching for her last name and couldn't find it. There's just nobody by that last name. (laughs) Oddly enough, I was searching for Hoover and I, I eventually, I just let her go. I said, go ahead and go in. I'll check in after a while because I'm in the middle of a couple things. But, you know, I tried and tried and Hoover wasn't in there. Her name was Kirby. <laughs> Laughed at myself for that one. But anyway, if you want to remember names, that's how you do it. So here's an experiment that I did. I was in New York conducting a workshop for the weekend. And I had about 35 people in there. And we had done all sorts of hypnosis training and cool hypnosis experiments and such. And on the last day, we had talked about not remembering names because some people had taken their name tags off or forgotten them or whatever. So I said, well, I've got an idea. Let's just go ahead and remember everybody's name. So first, I want everyone to close your eyes. And I want you to know that you have a perfect memory. You have a photographic memory. You are able to hear, see, and retain the name of a person And it comes up instantly when you see their face. So I asked everybody then to open their eyes and to stand up and each person would just say their name. That's all. And then they'd sit down after they said their name. That's all we had to do. And then I had everybody close your eyes and say, now anybody who still has your name tag on, take it off, crumble it up and, or put it away. And then I again told them with their eyes closed that you do have a perfect memory for names. You connect the name and the face with that person. It's easy for you. It happens naturally. So then I had them open their eyes and we went around the room one more time with everybody saying names. Nothing more, just one time and sit down after you say your name. Good. And then take a deep breath. (sighs) 
I reinforced a bit that they do have an excellent memory for names and that it's easy to recall them. So then I had them open their eyes and on a piece of paper, we would start with the first person and just one person would stand up and say nothing and sit down. And when that person stands up, you're just going to write on number one, just write their name, write a number two and the next person stands up and write their name. So, you know, these people believe that they're terrible with names. And we did this experiment because someone had said that. And then another person said, oh, me too. I can't remember names. So, so I said, oh yeah, you can. So they did this. And out of 35 people, most of the participants got almost all the names right or got them all right. But people didn't have like half of them right. Most of them had like 30 or 31 or 32 names out of 35 all correct. So we did learn that indeed they're not bad at names. They've just been programming themselves or hypnotizing themselves by the power of repetition and suggestion and expectation that they are indeed going to be bad with names. But in just a short little 10-minute process, they're suddenly good with names. So next time you want to remember somebody's name, take an extra three seconds to put something imaginary beside their head and just see something right there. Or maybe you see like this really beautiful crown above their head that has their name and it says Delilah. Whatever you want to do, just do something visual that helps to attach their name to who that person is. And now you will be the person who says, I am really good at names. I just remember people's names. It's easy for me. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. So those of you who are listening to this podcast, who are in school or you study or you have to take exams, no matter what kind of exams they are, there is a mind machine you can create that will help you make it easier, make you smarter, have an excellent memory, bring forward the exact information that you need to know in order to have the answer And have it happen on an unconscious level. So unconscious, meaning not unconscious, like, you know, uh, you're like out of it. But the other than conscious function, the thing that we can't really explain or understand, but it will come from that other than conscious place. So now I want to take a moment to tell you what you can do if you need more help with this. I have a program that is for your magnificent memory. It's to help you with all aspects of memory. And it's test anxiety so that you're setting the triggers that are going to make you feel relaxed and comfortable and have a lot of easy time taking an exam or a test and to create the ability to have a good memory when you're reading information. So you're reading and studying and you don't retain it. You're just kind of skimming over it. I have a process. It gets you to remember what it is you're reading or studying and putting it in the right context in your brain so that you can retain it and recall it. And there's some instant recall um, techniques we use in the hypnosis program as well. And one of them is simply anchoring the information with something kinesthetic, So we take like a pencil eraser, if you have a pencil eraser, or maybe the click of your pen, but we're going to anchor that so that you can use that as a subconscious anchor when you need your brain to go into that super memory retention and recall mode. It really will change a lot of things. And then if you need help with spelling and reading, whether you're a child or an adult, I have a program called Speed Read Spell Well. And if you get that, there are sessions in there for kids, but there's sessions for adults as well. And it talks about mind machines and how to create them and how to use them. 
You could find the links to those below in the description of the podcast. If you're listening to this and you don't have a description, just go to hypnosis.wendy.com and there's a search box on the upper right up there and you can just put memory and you'll see the programs. So remember hypnosis.wendy.com and Wendy's with an I. All right, so you have just learned a lot about what we're going to do to take care of our brains. We're going to smoke more pot, drink less alcohol, (laughs) use mind machines, and start telling ourselves that your memory gets better every day, that it's easier and easier to recall what you've studied or remember names or use the positive words and phrases that give you what you do want because we know that you've probably spent enough time telling yourself what you don't want. So let's change it. Have the belief that you have a good memory. Use suggestions, words, and phrases that reinforce that you have a good memory and good recall. Have the expectation that you're going to do well if you take a test or exam or you're going to give a presentation, that that is going to go really well and you're going to remember everything you need to know. And experience it as already having happened. So taking yourself past the point of the the exam that you're taking or the studying you have to do or the paper you have to write or the presentation you have to give, whatever it is, getting yourself to the end point and going like, yeah, I totally rocked that man. I just nailed it. That was so much fun. Putting that emotion, feeling, visual, sound, everything you can into that is going to help you to have that expectation of that state of mind that you need when you're going into that experience. Make sense? Remember all the things I've told you and taught you about how you need to envision the end result. You need to see it, feel it, experience it, everything you can. Put as much emotion into it. Create an anchor that is a symbol or a sound or a color or all of those. (laughs) And those represent the success you have of having accomplished it and finished it. Isn't that awesome? Yes, I know. Give yourself a high five. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm Wendy Friesen, and I want you to find everything you need to feel better, be happier, smarter, have a great memory, to overcome some of the difficulty in your life, even addiction to drugs or alcohol, or addiction to pornography or gambling or cigarettes, whatever it is. So go on over to wendy.com or get in touch with me personally and I will help you. Well, it's been just a pleasure hanging out with you. So what you can do to help me is tell your friends to listen to this podcast. You can go to iTunes and you can rate it and you can give me lots of stars if you're so inclined because we all like stars, don't we? Oh, we do. And (laughs) what else? Um, Tell your friends. That's the main thing. I want this podcast to really have a lot of reach and help a lot of people to understand why they're having such difficulty in so many parts of their life and how easy it's going to be to overcome it and feel really good again. All righty. I will catch you again in a few days. You have a fabulous day. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Sleep With Me, starring Wendy Friesen. Please subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes to help support it, grow it, and help your friends enjoy it just like you do. Check out the description for more information about the topics discussed and some links, or wendy.com for all your Wendy needs.